Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to the Old Testament book of Malachi, to Malachi chapter 3 for our time together here this morning. We are in the third week of a study through the book of Malachi where we've looked at the series called Return to Me. Uh, As God is speaking these words to the prophet Malachi to give to his people, it was a very strategic time in the history of the Israelites. Frankly, it was, was a time that should have been a season of celebration. This should have been a time of great joy. In fact, outwardly, as you look at the Israelites, there were a lot of things about them that it seems like, hey, this is the time to celebrate. Things are finally coming together. In many ways, we could look at the Israelites and we could say that it, it at least outwardly appears that they're finally getting their act together. But the fact of the matter is, is that while surface on the surface, things looked a certain way, inwardly, there were some major things that were wrong. And so God has to write through Malachi, to speak through Malachi, to say, I want you to return to me. Now think of this for just a moment. In the Old Testament, we see a very sad pattern, a cycle, if you will, upon the children of Israel. At the very beginning in the Old Testament, we learn that God establishes a a covenant with Abraham, and then, of course, that covenant continues on, that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We recognize quickly that God chooses the Israelites to be his chosen people. God creates a relationship, a covenant with them, and he says, I will be your God, and I will love you, and I will take care of you. And, of course, they agree that they will love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in this covenant relationship, God declared something. God specifically declared that if if they were to walk in his ways and were to follow him and were to honor him, that God would bless them. But God also declared that if they rejected him and turned from him, that there would be great consequences, that there would be judgment as a result. The sad pattern of the Old Testament is that God's chosen people, the people who he loved unconditionally and sacrificially and faithfully, God poured out his love on them. And for a season, they would worship God and they would honor God and they would love God as they ought. But in time, sadly like we might do, they would harden their hearts. They would get distracted. They would begin to pursue their own things. They began to put God on the back burner to where their relationship with him was not that important. And they would begin to pursue other things. And just like God had established in that covenant, when they would reject God and reject his ways, they would experience consequences and they would experience God's judgment. And so oftentimes we'd see that they began to experience great difficulty. And then many times they would even be literally in bondage as slaves. And they'd come to the point where they would repent of their sin and they would cry out for mercy and cry out for grace. And God, who was gracious and loving, would forgive them and would draw them back. They would be restored and they would begin worshiping God again. Only in time to fall back into the same pattern again. Well, by the time we get to the book of Malachi, we see that God's people are in a good place. In fact, they have gone through these patterns. They have been enslaved, and and yet God has delivered them, and God has forgiven them. God has restored them. Not only has he delivered them from Babylon, but he has released them to go back to Jerusalem. 
And in going back to Jerusalem, they're rebuilding their lives. Literally, they are rebuilding their houses and they are rebuilding the temple of God and they are reestablishing worship of God the way that their ancestors had done before them and they are rebuilding the city walls. And on the outside, everything looked great. Everything looked like it was in order. But there was something missing. Were they going to the temple? Yes. Were they worshiping God? Yes. Were they praying? Yes. They were literally kind of checking off the spiritual checklist. All the boxes were checked, but inwardly they knew something was off. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there in a place spiritually where frankly you know you're doing the right things? Like you're doing the things that you know that God desires or the things that you think are important. Maybe the things that you remember were taught in the Bible or the things you see by other Christians' examples. You're going through it, but you're looking inwardly and you're realizing something's missing. Something's off. Oftentimes in that situation when we realize that something is off, we begin to look around us and look to something or look to someone to see what the problem might be. And as we look at other things and we look at other people, we, we determine that it must be these other people and these other situations that are hindering me from being right with God or to doing what God desires. So, so for example, even as a pastor, I've at times heard, heard through, through 16 years of ministry, someone will say, well, you know, if so-and-so would worship, if the people around me, when we come to God's church and come to worship God, that they would worship more freely than I could worship more freely. Or if so-and-so wasn't so expressive, then I could really just focus in on God, but I'm just too distracted. Or maybe we would say, well, if the pastor preached this specific way and didn't alliterate all of his points, then maybe, maybe I could be moved to action. Well, if the music was this kind of style, then I could just really praise the Lord. But the problem in those moments is when we are looking for something and someone to find the reason for what is hindering us in the moment, Frankly, we are exactly where Satan wants us to be because so often we are looking at all the external factors to figure out what is off without looking at the internal part, recognizing that God is wanting us to see at times there are issues within our own hearts and in our own lives that are causing things to be off. Well, the people of Malachi's day, that's exactly where they were. In Malachi's day, they were outwardly going through the motions. God, we're worshiping you. God, we're praising you. God, we're giving to you. God, we're praying. We're coming to the temple. But something was off, and God speaks in the book of Malachi to address those very things. Now, there's numerous things that God addresses in the book of Malachi. We are looking at the four main things that God was addressing to the entirety of his people. So, so two things we've seen already. First, we saw that God looks at them and he says, you are despising my name. And again, they ask the question, but God, how are we despising you? And he says, through your worship. You are bringing the sacrifices and the offerings. You're bringing the animals that are diseased and are lame. You're bringing the animals to me to sacrifice that frankly you don't even want. In other words, he says to them, your worship has become worthless. Remember, our worship is when we're in essence by our actions showing God his worth and his value in our life, that we're showing that we love him, that we praise him, that we glorify him above any and everything else. And they just brought really the leftovers of their life, if you will. Then we see the second thing we saw in Malachi chapter two. We see that God specifically says, not only have you despised my name, but you've also disrespected me. And of course they again said, but God, how have we disrespected you? And God says, you've disrespected me in the way that you're treating others. 
the way that you're treating your brothers and sisters, and specifically the way that you're treating your spouse. And we learn from Malachi chapter 2 that many of the, the, the Jewish men, God's, God's leaders in this context, many of them were divorcing their wives and pursuing relationships that were not pleasing to God. And not only did they pursue them, but then they married them thinking that would justify their actions. And God says, no, I am not pleased with it. Well, there's a third thing that God addresses now in Malachi chapter 3 that I believe had a powerful message for the people of God's day and is still a powerful message for us today. Malachi chapter three, God addresses a third major issue that was hindering them in their relationship with God, and that is this. God confronts them for the sin of robbing him. The sin of robbing him. So today from Malachi chapter three, verses eight through 12, I wanna preach to you just very quickly on the subject, robbing God, robbing God. God. And I believe what God wants us to see from the book of Malachi is that in those times when it feels like spiritual that something is off or that something may be missing, God is calling us to look beyond the surface of things and to look at the heart of the matter. Oftentimes when we go through those situations where things seem off, we, we kind of make surfacey changes. Well, uh, I'm distracted over here, so I'm going to sit in this other seat and then I can really worship God. Or, or I can't really worship God freely in this, or, or I need this. And so we go to a completely different place of worship or to some other thing that seems easier or convenient for us. But the fact of the matter is, no matter what surface things are changed, eventually the heart issues will come out. And God's people are in this place. They're trying to do some things, to spruce things up and change some things. But God shows us the heart of the matter, and we see it in verses 8 through 12. And I want to ask you if you're able to do so, will you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. The Bible says this, interesting statement God makes in verse eight. Will a man, what's the word? Rob God. Listen to what God says. Yet you are robbing me. But you say, God, how have we robbed you? And then God answers, in tithes and offerings. He goes on. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Listen to what God says in verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until, it's a word that makes some people uncomfortable, it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 12. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for this morning and for the time we have together. God, I thank you for your word and how every, every part of it, Father, it is inspired by you. And I pray, God, that through it you would speak to our hearts and lives today. God, I confess that even preaching on this topic at times is very uncomfortable. But God, I pray that you would help us to understand today that we are not in the place to try to change your word. Instead, God, we need to hear your word, to receive it for what it is, to, to yield ourselves to it, and instead of trying to change it, Lord, let our lives be changed by the authority of your word. So God, please speak to us today. Convict us where it's needed. Encourage us where it's needed. We pray for your glory and honor. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. I realize today that this message may be uncomfortable because of the topic at hand. I remember many years ago being a young pastor and meeting with an older pastor one day, and we were talking through various things of ministry. And as we talked, I asked him, I said, well, tell me, 
what are some of the topics that you enjoy preaching about? And he told me. And I said, well, what are some of those topics that you don't enjoy preaching about? He said, well, there's two of those that I have a difficult time preaching about. And I said, well, what are they? He said, it's any time I'm talking about God's biblical perspective of marriage and of money. Well, of course, I was a young and naive young pastor, and so I thought, well, why in the world would you have a hard time with that? The Bible's pretty clear about those things. And he said, as I asked him the question why it was so difficult, he said, the reason it's so difficult is not because the Bible's unclear, but it's because people get so mad about those two topics. And of course, I didn't understand that. I was a new pastor. I said, why do people get so mad about those topics? And he said, Matthew, it's because today in our culture, our lives are so contrary to what God taught many years ago. Now, that was almost 17 years ago today, and that situation hasn't changed a whole lot. It is an uncomfortable topic. But I believe it's one that God wants to address in our life, ultimately so that we would be in a right relationship with him and bring our best in a, in a heart of worship to him. Unfortunately, as we think about giving and as we think about stewardship, as we think about generosity, many of us view it, even believers sometimes view it, in a very, uh, very kind of looking down way, if you will. I'm reminded of the illustration of the little boy one day that was walking down the street with his mother and he had some coins in his hand and he was shaking them and playing with them and suddenly as they were walking down the street, his mom looked down. She knew that something was wrong and, and she quickly realized he, he was choking and she looked down at his hand and she realized that one of the coins was missing and she quickly understood, my little boy is choking. He's got a coin in his mouth and she did everything she could to help him but there was nothing she could do to relieve him. About this time this is happening, there was another gentleman walking down the sidewalk, and he saw in the distance a look of panic on her face, and he saw the little boy struggling. And so the man rushed to her, and she quickly explained, my, my son's lost a coin. It's in his mouth. He's choking. And so that man quickly swooped that boy up, and he turned him upside down, and he, he kind of smacked him on the bottom of his feet. And then in one quick swoop, he, he hit him at the right specific spot of his back, and suddenly the coin came thrusting out of his mouth. And she was amazed, and she looked at him and said, Sir, thank you, thank you, thank you. You must be a doctor. Thank you. You're such a great doctor. And he said, Ma'am, I am not a doctor. She said, What do you mean you're not a doctor? He said, I'm not a doctor, but I do work for the IRS. Many of us view the government that way. We view taxes that way. And sadly, even when it comes to giving to the Lord's work, sometimes we see it that way. It's like, oh, this is this, this big burden. It's this big challenge. It's something that we have to do. But I believe God wants us to see giving as an act of worship to him where we cheerfully and lovingly give our best to him because we know he has been good to us and because we know he is worthy of nothing less than our best. So three things I believe God wants us to see from Malachi chapter three in this sin of robbing God. The first thing we see this morning is a serious indictment, a serious indictment. Now, I anticipate this morning that physically when you go to the doctor, you do not wanna hear bad news, right? Is it safe to assume that when you go to the doctor, if you want to go to the doctor and hear good news from your doctor, would you say Amen. Glad we're awake. Okay, very good. If I go to the doctor, I do want the doctor to look at me and say, man, your blood work looks great. Everything looks normal. Everything looks fine. Keep doing what you're doing. That's what I want to hear. I don't want to hear there's a problem. I don't want to hear there's an issue. Your, your blood levels are off. Your blood counts are different. I don't want to hear you need to exercise more, okay? I don't want to hear that. At the same time, if there is a problem, if there is something that is wrong, if there's something that needs to be addressed, I expect the doctor to be honest with me. 
I anticipate the doctor's going to say in that moment, here is the problem, here is the issue, and some changes need to be made. I don't want to ignore it at that point if something is wrong. I want to hear it so that I can be honest with it and then begin to create some steps of change in my life so that I can be healthy and be well. Well, while that's true physically, spiritually speaking, there are some things that God had to address with his people. They're worshiping. They're going through the outward motions. They have an appearance of religion, frankly. But spiritually, there are some major things that were wrong. And so God speaks to say, listen, here is the truth. Here is the problem. Here's what's missing. And I believe what God said in that moment in this sobering word, this serious word of indictment, is a serious word even for many of us perhaps today. That word is simply this. He asked the question. Will a man rob God? And then he goes on to say, yet you are robbing me. Now, some would ask this question, well, how can somebody rob from God? I mean, after all, doesn't God own everything? The Bible says in Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So if God owns everything, how is it possible that we can rob from him? But friend, I want to remind you something very, very specific. The Bible makes it clear that God does own everything. He owns every resource. He owns every penny. Everything belongs to him. But God is not close-fisted with us. God is so good and so gracious and so generous that in so many ways in our life, he has opened his hands to bless us with the resources and the various things that he's entrusted to us. Many people would argue, but pastor, I I have this job and I work hard for the money that I have and I've done this and I've done that and I deserve such and such. It may be true that you have a job and it may be true that you work hard, but please understand, it is God who gives us the ability to work. It is God who gives you the mind to work. It's God who gives you the skills to work. It's God who gives you the hands to put things together. It's God who gives you the feet to take you there. It's God who works all these things together, ultimately for his glory, but also for your good and for the good of others. It's God who opens the doors of opportunity for your job. It's God who does these things. Some might claim the credit, but how do we even explain that some doors close while other doors open without the sovereign hand of God at work, moving and working according to his purposes? In other words, God owns everything, but he graciously entrusts portions of his vast resources into our hands for us to steward for his purposes. And frankly, he's been doing that from the very beginning. God created Adam and Eve, and he also created the Garden of Eden. God created everything in it. He owned it. It was his resources. And yet he put Adam and Eve in that garden, and he didn't just tell them to hang out and waste time and have fun in the garden. No, he gave them a job and a responsibility to manage it for his glory. In other words, God owned it, but he entrusted it to their care to steward for his glory. The same is true with us, with everything that God entrusts to us. It is he who blesses us with it, but he allows us the opportunity to steward it in such a way that it would bring him glory and bring good to others. So two things about that. First, we see God's desire. God says to them, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And then he tells us how. How can some, verse 8, and he tells us through two words, he says to the people of Malachi's day in two ways, in tithes and in offerings. In tithes and in offerings. The word tithe has commonly been explained that literally it means a tenth. That is not an allegory. That is not a metaphor. It is not a typology. It is not an illustration. The word tithe literally means to give a tenth, but also they were robbing God, not only in tithes, but in offerings. 
offerings or anything that's given sacrificially above the tithe. I don't know about you, but I personally believe it is reasonable to understand that the one who has been so generous in his blessings to us, it is only right and it is only appropriate that we would honor God first by giving generously towards him. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's important to emphasize that even before God established the Mosaic law, we understand that tithes and offerings were practiced. In fact, if you were to go read this week for some interesting reading, Genesis chapter 14, verse 20, and Hebrews chapter 7, we see the man by the name of Abraham. He was in a season of great blessing. He was in a season of great victory. He was in a season where, frankly, God entrusted great resources to him. And even before God required it in the law of Moses, Abraham, the Bible says, recognizing that his blessings came from God, he gave a tithe to Melchizedek, who was a representative of God. He gave a tenth. He gave the first fruit, recognizing God has been good to me. It's God who's blessed me. It's God who's given the victory. It's God who's entrusted these resources to me. Fast forward 400 years to the law of Moses in Genesis chapter, I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, in Numbers chapter 18, Leviticus 17, we see again God establishing this law of Moses, calling the people to tithe. Very interesting when you read through those statements of God calling this, we recognize they gave a tenth, a tenth of their crops and a tenth of their cattle, the first fruit they brought to honor God, to say, God, we love you. God, we recognize every gift comes from you. God, we want to worship you by giving back to you first and foremost. But I think it's very interesting in that culture with the law of Moses to understand that that giving of 10%, frankly, was just the start for them. In fact, when you read through the Old Testament and the Law of Moses, we quickly realize they actually gave three different tithes. They gave a tithe to the temple for its worship and its ministries. They gave a tithe for the Levites, for God's provision of the workers, but also a tithe for the poor in the land that they gave to meet the needs every three years. In other words, when you take the Old Testament law from Genesis, I'm sorry, from Deuteronomy, from Leviticus, from the book of Numbers, when you take and put it all together, it literally shows us that the Israelites gave on average somewhere between 23 and 26% of their annual income towards blessing the Lord through their worship. Oftentimes in our culture today, even in Christian circles, we'll look at a tithe being 10% and we look at it as the pinnacle of giving, but for the Israelites, literally it was only the beginning. He said, Pastor, what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us in 2019? Are you saying that's what we're to do? No, that's not what I'm saying for us to do. But I do want us to understand that God is still calling us to be a people who are generous. There are some here today, maybe perhaps, who would say, but, but wait a second, do we see the word tithe in the New Testament? And the answer is, we do. In fact, Jesus used the word twice in Matthew 23 and in Luke chapter 11. Listen to what Jesus says when he speaks these words. He says in Luke chapter 11, verse 42, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, yes, you should continue to give your tithe, but you should also make sure that your heart is right with God, that you love him supremely, and that you're looking out for the needs of others around you. Jesus is showing us here the priority of giving, that yes, we're to honor God by giving first, but as we do, we're to do so not to check off a box or because it's expected of us, but because we love God and because we love others around us. 
even to the extent that we're willing to give to bless and to help them, perhaps even at times of our own sacrifice. In other words, God is calling us to be a generous people, to show our gratitude to him, our devotion to him, and our love for him in this way. Listen to the way the New Testament says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I love these words of Scripture. It says it this way. Each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly, like the people of Malachi's day, oh, we got to do this again. It's such a burden. Not under compulsion because they were manipulated or forced. Listen to the statement. For God loves a what? A cheerful giver. Now, that's not saying, oh, man, I'd be a lot more cheerful if I just gave a little bit to God. No, it's the idea that we recognize God's been so good to us. He's been so gracious to us. He's been so generous to us, so cheerfully. Man, it should be an honor to realize that we have an opportunity to give back to him. We have an opportunity to partner with him in his work. We have an opportunity to bless the one who has blessed us beyond what our words could ever even describe. God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it's written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower, listen to this, and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service, it's not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it is overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. In other words, what God is showing us is this, is that literally he uses this generosity as a means through which we can worship God, as a means through which we can partner with God in his work, as a means through which literally as we honor God first, he in his grace and his mercy also turns around and is faithful to fulfill his promises. I love the way that one writer said it. He said it this way. We should choose to give because God is worthy of our best and we simply want to honor him first with all that he entrusts to us. So I want to challenge you this morning. Man, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let's decide to give, not with a begrudging or complaining spirit like the people of Malachi's day, but instead to give because we love God and we see the eternal value in giving our best to him. Warren Worsby said it this way, since God made and owns everything, he doesn't need anything that we can bring him. But when we obey his word and bring our gifts as an act of worship with grateful hearts, it is pleases him. And if there's no other motivation but to simply please God, it is motivation enough. So we see God's desire. If you're still with me, would you say, I am? All right. Secondly, I want you to see man's denial. Man's denial. God says, will a man rob me, yet you are robbing me? And then think for a moment about how the people respond. I think one of the sad things about God's people in the book of Malachi is that over and over again, God has to say something specific and intentional to them. And over and over again, they argue with God. In the very beginning, God says, I love you. And they say, oh yeah, prove it. How have you loved us? And God explains. God looks at them and says, you are despising my name. And they say, oh yeah, 
prove it. And God says, okay, you're despising my name, and the evidence of that is the way that you're worshiping me. You're giving me your leftovers of your time, the leftovers of your talents, your treasures. You're bringing things that, frankly, you're treating your governors and your officials better than you treat me. Then we see God looks at them and says, you're disrespecting me. And they say, but God, how are we disrespecting you? And he says, in the way that you treat other people. You claim that they're your family, they're your brothers and sisters. You, you, you look at your spouse and, and instead of loving them and being loyal and being faithful, you are, you're dealing treacherously and you're dealing deceitfully and you're divorcing them and you're shunning them and you're doing all these things. Even now, God says, you are robbing me. And instead of taking it in and saying, God, you are right, we are sorry, instead of acknowledging, frankly, their sin, here's what they say, oh, yeah, prove it. How are we robbing you? Now, what would bring them to this place where they would not literally not see what they were doing was wrong? I think, sadly, the reason why they didn't see what they were doing is wrong is because they were blinded by religion. They were. They were so caught up in their works. They were so caught up in simply arriving at the temple. They were so caught up in the, the religious works they did. Well, God, we pray God, we, we bring sacrifices. God, we, we, we come to you and we, we, we do, do things to try to help you. And God, we do all these different things. They were so caught up in their religious works and activity that they didn't realize that it wasn't based out of a relationship and their love for God. So they denied it. God, we haven't robbed you. God, we haven't done these different things. They bring these excuses. They had justified their actions simply because they were caught up in their religion. After all, in their minds, they weren't as bad as the people who didn't know God. They didn't act like the heathen nations around them. I mean, after all, in their mind, God, we're at least doing something right. I mean, we're coming to the temple and we're bringing a gift. God, we're, we're not like all these other people, they reasoned in their minds. But there is no amount of justification or excuses that frankly would change God's indictment. The simple phrase, you are robbing me. Which leads me to a second point, and that is it leads us to a sobering ignorance. It leads us to a sobering When God speaks and he says, this is what I desire of you, and they begin to make excuses, frankly, for why they couldn't do that or why they wouldn't do that, it brings them to a place of ignorance where, frankly, they can't see the truth. I don't know about you, but uh, my wife and I are blessed. We have four children. We have a 15-year-old, a 13-year-old, 11-year-old, and an almost 9-year-old. Uh, Heather and Mac are out of the house this week, so pray for us that my kids don't starve, okay? That'd be awesome. And uh, anyway, we're having a great time. I told my kids earlier this week, they were like, Dad, what are we going to do when, when Mom and Mac are gone? I was like, well, I'm going to make you cook your own food. And they said, you are? I said, yes. And literally last night, I grabbed a hot dog weenie and a roaster and said, here you go. You can go. <laughs> They're not going to starve this week, I promise. But, but I think about that. Sometimes with my children, there are some things, especially with my older children, that sometimes I can advise them on or even instruct them on that they frankly just cannot see. I don't know if you parents have ever been there before, where, where you have a child literally, that they're in this situation where things aren't working out and you see the solution and you can even recommend the solution, but they just can't, it's like they just can't hear what you're saying. It's like you're speaking Greek or French or something like that, right? And that's the way it was with the Israelites in this moment. God is speaking to them, but they literally in their ignorance are totally missing it. Because here's what they're thinking. They're seeing giving to God as optional. They're seeing it as, well, we can or we can't, but they're not realizing in the context of their robbing God how else it was affecting them. 
We need to recognize that the act of giving, it is a means of worshiping God and demonstrating his authority in our life. Honoring God through giving is a way of demonstrating that he truly is the Lord of our life. But instead, all they could see is what they would lose by giving to God without realizing how their disobedience was already robbing them. I've said it numerous times in other contexts, but think of it this way. The cost of disobedience is always far greater than the cost of obedience. They didn't realize that their lack of blessing in this moment was a consequence of their own disobedience and that if they would honor God first, he would take care of the rest. In other words, when we rob God, whether we realize it or not, we're also robbing ourselves. Think of it for a moment. I believe we see that with the people of Malachi's day in three ways. Number one, their robbery hindered their work. Their robbery hindered their work. Notice verse nine, the Bible says, God looks at them and speaks these words that none of us wanna hear. He says to them, you are cursed with a curse. Now, without context, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? Why would God do that? But with the context, we understand all the way back from Deuteronomy chapter 11, when God established a covenant with them, he said, here are my ways, walk in them. If you walk in them, there will be blessing upon blessing. But if you reject them and turn to your own way, there will be curses and consequences. So when God says here in verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, he's not just beating them over the head with a, with a stick, so to speak. He's basically simply saying, these are the consequences of your actions. In other words, he begins to describe the fact that they're experiencing the consequences for rejecting God in this way and not giving their best to him. It's very interesting to read in Deuteronomy 28, verse 33, to understand that one of the primary consequences for rejecting God in this way would be in the way that their crops would be limited and or ruined. In fact, God says to them very clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 28, if you turn away from me and turn to your own ways, the heavens are gonna become like bronze and I'm not gonna shower out blessings and you're gonna have a famine in the land and there's gonna be a, a hunger and there's gonna be pain. There are gonna be consequences for these things. Isn't it interesting then to read in verse 10 that God's storehouse no longer had food? What was the purpose of the food? It was to meet the needs of the people around them. It was to feed the poor. In this context, he even was to bless a portion of the Levites. In this context, God says, my house has no food in it. And then he says in verse 11, there's a devourer that was among them. He says, I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its groups, cast its great. And what literally the commentaries describe here is that there was a devourer, some sort of a bug, some sort of an insect that was devouring the crops. And as a result of that, they had a very little, very meager harvest. They had a loss of resources. They had a loss of food. Sadly, their own parents and grandparents had dealt with this 100 years earlier. Listen to these words of Scripture from Haggai chapter 1. Their own grandparents dealt with this same exact issue as they experienced the consequence of their disobedience. The Bible says it this way in Haggai chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 and verses 9 through 11. If you're still with me, would you say, all right. The Bible says it this way. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest, what's the next word? Little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earn wages to put into a purse 
with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. You bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Now, I am not a financial guru. I am not Dave Ramsey certified and approved, okay? Pastor Terry is, but that's not me. But I do know this. I do know that if you've got a lot of holes in your wallet, it's not going to hold very much. Does that make sense? And what God was saying to them in that context was, the reason why that's the case is because you're not honoring me first. You're not putting me in the process of first place, giving me your best. What, he see, what we're seeing is, is that they're robbing of God robbed them ultimately of their work. Their working in vain had, they were working in vain and had nothing to show for their labor because they had neglected to honor God first. Maybe today that might be a reason why spiritually things seem off, why it feels like you're spinning your wheels, why you're still seeming having no sense of direction or clarity of what God is wanting you to do. It could be that very reason why there's so much effort and so little to show. Their robbing of God hindered their work. Not only that, their robbing God hindered their worship. It hindered their worship. These were people who were going to the temple, they were praying, they were doing all these different things, and I won't get into the whole details of that any further, but I will simply say this, it was to these very same people that God had to say in Malachi chapter 1, I wish that someone would get up and literally close the gates because this half-hearted worshiper, people are coming and, and not really worshiping me and not giving their best, and they're complaining about it all along the way. This is not pleasing to me. So God says, I want it to stop. Did they have good intentions? Maybe. Did they have an outward appearance? Certainly. But were they honoring God? No. And God says they're robbing of him. It hindered their work, but it also hindered their worship. I want to remind us this morning that our giving is not simply a part of tradition. It's not a part of routine. It's not just a part of the normal flow of a Sunday morning service. It is to be an act of worship. It is even through our giving that we are in essence saying, Jesus, you are the Lord of my life. You own it all. I want to live my life for you. And one of the simple ways we can demonstrate that is by honoring him through our generosity. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one, not you, not me, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one or love the other. He will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, what's the word? Wealth. The question is, who is the Lord of our life? Is my security found by trusting in the Lord or trusting in my resources? Is my security found in trusting in my ability to earn and take this job and make more money? Or is my security found in the fact that I know the Lord, that I live for him, I surrender to him and trust him with my life? It's a matter of trust. But the third thing we see about their robbery is that their robbery hindered their witness. Notice verse 12. God gives this word of promise. He says, all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land. The children of Israel in this moment did not realize how their giving to the Lord, or lack thereof, was actually hindering the effectiveness of their witness to the nations around them. 
I don't know if you remember this or not, but in Genesis chapter 26, verse 4, God had given this word of promise to Abraham and for his descendants. He said this, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. It will be through you, Abraham, and through the Jewish people. It will be through these chosen people of mine that I bless all the nations. Now, that would be fulfilled when Jesus would come through the Jews to be a savior for the world, for all who believe. Please understand that promise began even then. And what God was saying in that moment was this, Abraham, I am raising up a people to make me known throughout all the world. I'm raising up a people, Abraham, who will tell people who the living God is, the true God is, the God who can do all things. With him, nothing is impossible. The one that can bring you through the Red Sea, the one that can cause you to walk on dry land, the one that can raise the dead. I'm the true living God. And I want you to be a witness to the world around me. And yet it would be through their lack of generosity that many of them perhaps would try to proclaim who the true living God was. And yet through their own act of giving, they would give so very little. In fact, we see from Malachi chapter 1, their own governors and officials, they treated with much deeper respect than they treated God himself. One writer said it this way, Had they trusted the Lord, he would have done great things for them and they would have had a great testimony to others. But as it was... They were in the moment floundering in their faith, and nobody could call them blessed. Can you imagine? Could it be, though, the same in our own lives today? As I think about what's going on in their life, in essence, the Israelites are saying, God, we, we want to honor you. God, you're the true living God. We want to worship you. But by their giving, frankly, they were doing so very little. Could it be even in our own lives today, sadly, as Christians, sometimes we do the same? We might pray, God, would you, would you save the masses? God, we look at the world around us. It's, there's so much evil. We look at the shootings that are happening. We look at the political scene. God, there's, there's so much distraction, so much corruption. God, we need you. Would you save the masses? It's easy to pray that generically without also being willing to do whatever it would take on our part. God will give wherever, we will go wherever, we will share whatever, God, so that the masses would be saved. It's easy for us to pray, God, would you reveal yourself to our neighbor? Would you save their soul and change their life? And yet at the same time, we're often so unwilling to be bold and share the gospel with that same neighbor in need. God, God, would you meet the needs of the poor in our community? There are so many needs. God, there are so many issues. God, would you, would you please help them? God, would you please meet those needs? And yet at the same time, so often we are unwilling to do what we can to meet those needs. See what I'm saying? God, God, you care about every child, and God, you care about every child's a gift from you, and God, would you meet the needs of these individuals in our community, and God, would you bless the children, and God, would you save them, God, would you do this? And yet so often we are unwilling to do what God has put before us the opportunity to do because we reason in our mind it will cost too much, take too much of our time, It'll be way too inconvenient. I can't restructure things. I can't work it out. What's happening in Malachi's day is the people are claiming to worship God, and yet they're frankly willing to give so very little. Which brings us to a third thing, and I'll wrap up our time. We see a simple invitation. If, if you've missed anything in the message, don't miss this part. If the person beside you has fallen asleep, give them a holy elbow, okay? A simple invitation. I don't know about you, but I am so encouraged when I see God's response 
But because I look at this and I think, man, how's God going to respond to the people who have doubted his love, despised his name, disrespected him, and now robbing from him? Let me ask you just a question for fun. What would you do to someone who was robbing you? I mean, really, if someone was robbing you and you knew about it and they continued to do it, what would you do? Well, I'd set a surveillance camera, you know, I'd be hiding in the closet. I don't know what. We would be thinking of anything we could do. We would make sure judgment is passed. But what does God do? God is so filled with grace and mercy and compassion God is so filled with generosity that he's still showing opportunity and he's still drawing them back. He's still drawing them to a relationship. Watch what he does in verse 10. He gives a word of invitation. Here's what he says. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Not just a portion, not what's convenient, not what's easy, not what you've excused and justified in your mind. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. It's not that God was going to eat it. God was concerned about the needs of his people. And he says this, this statement in verse 10. The only time in all the Bible you'll see God say this. And test me now in this. In other words, God gives a proposal, if you will. Bring the whole tithe in the storehouse. Don't, don't slacken this. Don't, don't give what's convenient. Bring the whole tithe in the storehouse and test me now in this. The word for test literally means to prove. God is saying, listen, honor me first. Bless me first. Worship me first and foremost in your life. Yes, even through your generosity. And watch how I will prove myself is what God is saying. In fact, it's the same exact word that's used in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 13. I don't know if you remember the story, but the Bible tells us about a man by the name of Elijah. Elijah was the prophet of God, and the land was experiencing a great famine. And so the Bible says Elijah is making his way. He has left the brook Cherith, and he comes to the widow of Zarephath. And the widow of Zarephath is very poor. She literally has very little at home, and Elijah is hungry, being the messenger of God. He looks at her and says, would you make me, I'm going to interpret this from Alabama's language, would you go make me a biscuit, if you will? And what she says is this, I only have enough flour and oil at my house for one biscuit. My son and I are going to eat it, and then we're going to die. We're going to starve. We have nothing else left to eat. And Elijah looks back at her, listen to the verbiage in 1 Kings 17, verse 13, and he says this, that's okay, go make a little cake first for me, go make a biscuit for me, and then prove me whether there will not be enough afterwards for you and your son. Now think what's happening for a moment. This widow lady knew she only had very, very little. She knew exactly how much flour and oil she had in her cupboard at home. And now the messenger of God is saying, I would like you to prepare this for me first. Honor, in this context, honor God's will first and then watch what God will do. Now this lady has to make a choice. Am I going to do this or not? Do I believe that Elijah's God is the true God or not? Do I believe that his God can do the impossible? 
I mean, do I believe that his God can defy logic to where even though I have this little bit of flour and this little bit of oil, that God can do something supernatural? Do I believe it? In other words, the key ingredient to giving was faith. Not so much about willingness or want to. It's about faith. And so what does she do? 1 Kings 17. She went and made, I think, the best southern Alabama biscuit she could have ever made, okay? She bakes it for Elijah. Elijah eats The Bible tells us when she went back to the cupboard, she continued to go back and continued to go back and continued to go back. And every day there was a famine in the land, God continued to provide her with the flour and the oil that she needed until the famine was removed from the land. You say, that's impossible. Not with God, it isn't. God says in that same word, when Elijah said, prove me whether there will not be enough afterwards for you and your son, that same word is the same word that God says when he says, and test me now in this. He's saying, listen, let me prove myself to you. There's a word of proposal. The question of our giving really isn't about the amount or about what is comfortable or uncomfortable. It's really a matter of worship and trust. Are we committed to worshiping God with our best and are we willing to trust his word? which brings us to the promise, and we will close. Notice what God says in verse 10. This makes some of us uncomfortable, but listen to what he says. Prove me now in this, test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. These people understood the significance of the windows of heaven being closed up because they were starting to see the famine in their land. They were starting to see the lack of produce that was coming from the fields. But God says, honor me by giving your tithes and offerings and I will open the windows of heaven and pour out the blessings. I'll rebuke the devourer for you and I will make you a witness to the nations around you. In other words, God was showing them that if they would faithfully obey him, they would see that he always faithfully keeps his promises. Please understand When God promises blessings, please don't misinterpret this and misunderstand it. He is not saying that you're going to be physically rich and healthy and that all your wildest dreams are going to come true. You you might hear some some preacher on television, well, if you just give this, then God's going to, you're going to be a millionaire next year. That is not what I'm saying. I am not saying if you give your best to God, you're going to have gold toilets in your house next week. That is not at all what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this. When we honor God first by giving to him and worshiping him and showing him the praise and the adoration that he alone is worthy of, God is faithful to provide for us and to take care of us and to bless us in ways beyond our imagination. Our blessings are not measured in temporary monetary value that will one day perish, but thank God they are measured in spiritual blessings that will last for eternity. The temporary things, they come and go. Look at your checking account and you'll see that. It comes and goes, doesn't it? But the blessings that God gives are spiritual blessings that nothing of this world can ever take away. Warren Wiersbe said it this way. Whenever we rob God, we always, but even more, the money that rightfully belongs to God that we keep for ourselves never stays with us. It ends up going to the doctor, the auto body shop, or the beloved tax collector. If we don't trust God to provide for us, whatever we do trust will prove futile. People, though, who lovingly give tithes and offerings to God find that whatever is left over goes much farther and brings much greater blessing. 
In other words, yes, giving is an act of faith, but it is one that God rewards time and time again when it's given for his glory and the good of others. Friends, I want to challenge you, never underestimate the eternal difference that is made when we give of our time, our talents, and even our treasures for the glory of God and good of others. The final word of Malachi chapter 3 is this simple statement. He said, Pastor, what is this really all about? Is this really about giving? We're not in some campaign. There's no specific thing that we're saying, hey, we're, we're asking. That's not the purpose here. The purpose is just to us to understand how God sees our stewardship and our giving. Because the truth of the matter is, it's not really about giving at all. God's not interested in us having a checklist where we just check off some action on the box. That's called religion. It's dead and it's worthless. What God is interested in is this. God is interested in us having a right relationship with him where we love him above anyone and above anything else. God is interested in us having a relationship with him. So interested is God in us having a relationship with him that God who is generous, even while we were sinners, frankly, even when we had done nothing and could do nothing to earn anything from him, God generously sent his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. He rose again from the grave three days later, and he invites us all to have a relationship with him. You know, in the Malachi's day, something very interesting was happening. Even though they continually rejected God, God continually graciously called them back, graciously called them back, graciously called them back. So much so that the very verse before our text this morning in Malachi chapter 3, verse 7, says this. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. But listen to God's invitation. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Sadly, the people in Malachi's day, again, they brought their rebuttal. But Lord, how shall we return? And then God begins to speak another word about the robbing of him. So pastor, what are you saying? Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying it's really not about our giving. It's not about the checklist. It's about a right relationship with God. And if God is first in our life, if Jesus is truly the Lord of our life, then it will change us, transform us completely. And it will be manifested in several ways. One of the ways that his lordship will be demonstrated is in the fact that not only do we give, we give joyfully, cheerfully and willingly because we recognize, frankly, he's worthy of so much more. Does that make sense? My hope and prayer today is that we won't be cold and distant in our relationship with God. My hope and prayer today is that if something spiritually is off in our life, God will help us to identify what's the cause. And then in doing so, we'll realize it's not him that's moved. It's not him that's separated. Time and time again, it's us because we've gone our own way. And my hope and prayer is that wherever God reveals that we will repent of our sin and we'll be brought back and restored to a right relationship. Let's pray together. Father, we do love you and we praise you. We thank you for your love for us and for the ways that you are speaking to our life. God, your word is so powerful and yet it is so practical. Lord, most of us get uncomfortable when we think about giving and generosity and money and all those different things. Sometimes we think perhaps that you know, the church or whatever is always asking for something. God, we're not, we're not asking for anything today. We just, as a church, God, as, as pastors, we desire to see your people honor you in all that we do. 
Father, one of the simple ways we can do that is through our generosity. But God, some of us are busy going through the motions. Lord, I think about the Pharisees and in, in Jesus' day as they were outwardly giving and checking off the box, so to speak, but they were doing it to be seen by men. They were doing it proudly to boast, and not out of a relationship with you. And God, I pray that that would not be true in our lives today. God, at the same time, there were also many people in Malachi's day that were just kind of turning up their nose to it and thinking that they could not do that. They could never measure up. So they did nothing. They literally did nothing. God, both of those extremes are completely wrong. So God, I pray today that out of a relationship with you and out of a love for you, that we would give generously to you and to your work so that your work is accomplished and your will is done in this place and through this place and even to the ends of the earth. God, I praise you for it in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.